Good morning. Very good to see you. If you've brought a copy of the Bible, please turn to our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. It wasn't just our gospel reading. We also uh, get this all sorted. We also just reenacted it in a way. Um, in our at our old building, we used to start in the parking lot, the entire congregation, and we all would process in. Not really possible in this building. Um, but think about these things that we've just done in this passage of scripture that we heard read. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Here is Jesus. He's making his way to Jerusalem. He commandeers a donkey and a colt, and the crowds are erupting in joy, and they're singing these old songs, and they're, they're chanting, and they're cheering, and they're spreading their cloaks on the road, and they're waving palm branches. What in the world is all of this strange monkey business? What is this about? The deal is that if you know Israel's family history, this is huge. Last night, uh, we celebrated my wife's 51st, or my wife's birthday. <laughs> I was just joking on the age there. Um, and we sat around the table, right? And we told our family stories. Like, um, it was just all of this fun remembering. And Janelle said as we were going to bed, I love listening to the kids um, remember together. Here's the deal. The Jewish people of Jesus' day, all right, these crowds, they believed that they knew the only God. They believed that their God was the one and only God, that he was the creator. He, he made the world. He was the God of all people and all time, and he guided the course of history, and he was in charge of it all, but something had gone wrong. The signs were all there. There were broken bodies, there were broken lives, there were broken systems, broken countries, and they believed that while God made this whole thing, it was broken and it needed fixing, it needed mending, it needed to be put right. And the Jewish people believed that they, the Jewish people, were key to the mending operation, that they were key to God's plan to make everything right. And the reason they believed that was because of their history. The founding father of the Jewish people was Abraham. And, the, he was the, and, the, and he had this relationship with God, the one and only God, the creator God. He introduced himself to Abraham. He spoke to Abraham. He told Abraham that he and his children were the way that God was going to work to fix the world, that God was going to use them to work through them to rescue and restore this world. When you fast forward in their family history, though, we see that God stays true to his word. He gives them these gifts. He gives them land. And as they're like shifting from a nomadic tribal existence into um, a, a, a society, a culture that has cities that's rooted in one place, as they're making this transition they begin to notice there's something about the surrounding nations that is not true of them, and they get jealous of it. 
And the thing that they're jealous of is that the other countries have this really cool thing. They have a king. And Israel looks around and they don't have a king. And so they, they beg God, really they demand from God a king. And God said, you don't need a king. That's not appropriate for you. I'm your king. And I'm the creator of the whole world. Why would you downgrade? You don't need a human king. But they just kept asking God. They kept pestering God, demanding of God. And so God gives them permission. And sure enough, as these things play out, God was right and they were wrong. Over and over, Israel's kings, as the years go by, fall into the same corruption as the other kings, as the kings of the world. And so all of the sudden, you've got Israel who is supposed to be the, the lifeguard that jumps into the water to save the drowning victim of the world. Israel is drowning herself. Israel is just like the rest of the world. Israel is just as broken as everybody else. And as you move forward in history, what happens is that Israel's enemies conquer Israel. First, there are the Assyrians in the year 722 BC. They roll through, they conquer. Then the Babylonians in 586 BC. Then the Persians in 439 BC. The Greeks, think Alexander the Great, 331 BC. And finally, and perhaps the nastiest of all in this long sequence of pagan overlords, the Romans conquer Israel about 70 years before this moment in the year 63 AD. And so by the time of our gospel passage this morning, by this time, Israel looks back on 600 years of being conquered. 600 years. So for us, that would be like looking back to the 1400s, right? That for 600 years, they've been pillaged, conquered by five different nations. So for over half a millennia, Israel has watched one regime after another, come and go. Sometimes they make big promises, but they're always letting them down. And so from generation to generation, Israel is longing to go back to the good old days where God was their king. And they keep believing that God one day is not going to give up on them. That one day God is going to return as their king and he is going to take charge and he is going to sort everything out. And when he sorts everything out with Israel, then Israel can be used to sort everything out in the world. Now throughout this long history... Um, the poets and the prophets of Israel, they would write songs that the people would learn and sing. The prophets would preach sermons and year after year in the midst of all the pain and the suffering, in the midst of all their exiles and enslavement, they would learn to sing these songs, these songs about God will return, God will be the king again, God is going to heal us, he's going to bring true justice and proper peace, he's going to bring real equity, he's going to remove all the corruption, he's going to get rid of all the oppression, and God and God alone is going to be what we need him to be, what we're desperate for, he's going to take control, he's going to sort everything out. So year after year, Israel sings these songs. It's their deep, deep songs, week after week, as they watch this dreary procession of corrupt officials and regimes just come and go through their land. And every year, the high point of their year was their annual festival called, anybody know? 
Passover, that's right, Passover. Every year they would get in big groups of people and they would travel up to Jerusalem and they were going to have this big religious festival. Throngs of people are making pilgrimages to Jerusalem from all over Israel. And as they walk on these, these, these journeys, they sing the songs. They quote the sermons. They remember together and they say, maybe this year, maybe this year is going to be the year. This year is going to be the year that God shows up, that God takes control, that God delivers us from those nasty Romans, that God gives us once again our place. Maybe this is the year for the return of the king. And it is in that moment, those, those pilgrimages up to, around the festival of Passover, it's in that moment that we are when we turn to Matthew chapter 21. These crowds that Jesus is surrounded by, these are pilgrims, and Jesus is one of the pilgrims, and he's walked with a whole group of them all the way up from up north in Galilee, and they've made this journey. And then when they suddenly get to the crest of the Mount of Olives, and if you've been to Israel or if you look in the pretty maps on the back of your Bible... They crest the Mount of Olives and opening up in, before them, what they can see now is they can see the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus, they have walked for weeks and weeks and weeks, and suddenly Jesus does a weird thing. In fact, he does a thing that he, he never, ever has done before. He rides a donkey. This is the only time in all of the Bible where Jesus travels about on land any way other than on foot. He's just made a huge journey. It's all down here from here. So when he stops and gets a donkey, it's not because he's tired. It's not because he needs one. I mean, he would have had to do that way back. No, Jesus is doing something. He's making a, a dramatic, deliberate, symbolic gesture. And here's the deal. The crowds of pilgrims that have been walking all along, they see it and they recognize the symbol. Because it, it comes from one of their favorite stories. Remember the crowds, they were singing songs of hope as they make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so when Jesus stops and he commandeers this donkey, and it's really odd, it's like lighting a stick of dynamite with that crowd. Our Old Testament reading, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This was one of those sermons that they had memorized, that they heard, that they, that they put their hopes on. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, when Jesus does that, he is saying to all of those people, I'm here. That's me. I am your king. And they get it. They immediately recognize what he's doing. And look, look what it says in Matthew chapter 21, verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. That's one of their favorite songs, comes out of the Psalms. Then they quote another song, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then they quote another one of the songs, Hosanna in the highest. This word Hosanna, it's a word that, that, that it's, it's a ver it means save us. So what they do is they see Jesus on the donkey and then they just shout to him, save us. Deliver us, set us free from these pesky Romans, from, from being conquered. And they don't only say, save us, they say, Hosanna, save us to the son of David. 
You see, Jerusalem was the city where King David, their favorite king, had made his capital a thousand years before. And for more than half that time, Israel had been praying that God would bring another king like David to save them. So they look at Jesus and they say, Hosanna to the son of David. This is it. This is the moment. Look what else they do. Verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Now, this isn't just some random move. What they're doing, they see Jesus saying, hey, from the old sermons from Zechariah, I'm the king. Then they reach back to one of the old stories, the story of 2 Kings chapter 9, where Jehu, where he comes into Jerusalem and is enthroned as the true king over against an imposter king. And in that story, many centuries before, the followers of Jehu signaled their allegiance to him by throwing their cloaks on the ground. And Jehu rode into Jerusalem on their cloaks. So what Jesus does, he reaches back, he picks up part of the story and says, it's me. They reach back a part of the story and say, we're with you. They throw their cloaks down on the ground. It's a way of declaring allegiance of saying, look, here's my cloak. And most of them would have only had one. I'll give that to you and anything else you offer. And then verse 8 says, others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. What they were doing is they were reaching back. About 200 years before this, there had been this moment where Israel had risen up. They had gathered an army. They had temporarily defeated their overlords. And that the leader of that group was Judas Maccabeus. And when Judas Maccabeus rode into Jerusalem 200 years before, after winning a little revolution against the people who were running the show at the time, the, the way they welcomed him was they cut palm branches. So some of the people go back to 2 Kings and throw their cloaks down. Some of the people go back to First and 2 Maccabees and they cut palm branches. And all of these things, all of these things are Jesus making the claim, he's the king. The people get whipped up. They're like, whoa, if grandma could have been here. But all is not well. And there's a hint at the end of our passage. Uh, Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? That word stirred up, it's an Easter egg, okay? If you watch Marvel movies. Um, it's kind of a weak translation. Um, the Greek word for stirred up is the word we get our word seismic from. So when you could translate it this way, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city quaked. Now, if you've been reading Matthew's gospel, like you should read it from left to right, that's how you read stories. And if you're reading the story of Jesus, um, the gospels, you know, they're, they're, they're these amazing books, they're these amazing pieces of literature. They don't reveal their treasures on first or second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth or 10th or 50th reading. They reveal their treasures on the hundredth reading. And if you've been reading Matthew, you suddenly realize, wait a minute, there was another time that Jerusalem was shaken. It was at Jesus' birth. When Jesus was born, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So notice, at his birth, there's talk of kingship. 
Then the next verse says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Like a little mini quake, a little Easter egg. At his birth, kingship, Jerusalem stirred up. Now he walks in, claiming to be king. The, the temperature turns up. There's a quake. And of course, if you keep reading the story, this is not the last quake, is it? We're told in chapter 27, verse 51, when he's crucified, the earth quakes. Same word, that seismic word. That's the second time we get the quake word. And then at Jesus' resurrection, it says the earth quakes a third time. Look, there's animals, right? Donkey. There's the earth. There's palm branches. What Jesus is up to is about everything. It's about people. It's about nations. It's about the earth. It's about plants. It's about animals. It's about all of this stuff. Now, what's going on? What's, what is the dark cloud that shows up at the end of the triumphal entry when Jerusalem begins to quake? What's going on is that Israel is confused. They don't know it yet, but they had confused their own dreams with God's plans. They picked the palm branches. They picked the cloaks. They picked all the symbols that comes from their ancient kings rising up and kicking tail and dominating. Jesus picked a different symbol. His symbol's different. He picks a symbol of humility. And so there's a different kind of imagery going on. Theirs is a rah, rah, we're going to fight and we're going to win. And Jesus's is a, behold your king coming on a donkey, humble, right? And, and that tension, it begins to shake the city. Israel was confused. They thought the king would lead them to pick up weapons and defeat Rome and establish Israel once again as an independent nation of power. And, and as the week goes on, it becomes clear to them that that's not what Jesus is going to do, that he's picking a different route. And they get mad about it. And those same crowds said, oh, you're not going to be the kind of king we want you to be. And they struck him down. So with their cloaks and their palm branches and their songs, they're saying, Jesus, you're the king. And they're bootlegging into that all of their dreams. But Jesus knows, and Matthew's told us, it's not that simple. He has come to Jerusalem as a king. He has come to Jerusalem to be coronated. He has come to Jerusalem to be enthroned, but not like Judas Maccabeus. His throne is going to be a cross. He's going to be enthroned through his crucifixion. His throne is going to be the cross. And the meaning that Jesus is attaching to his triumphal entry is quite different from the meaning that the crowds are attaching to it. Remember the story of Jehu I mentioned earlier? Back in 2 Kings, there's more to the story than Jehu riding in on a donkey on cloaks. Once Jehu gets to Jerusalem on the carpet of garments, he rides straight to the temple and he destroys the corrupt leadership of Jerusalem. 
There's another important story. It's um, 2 Samuel chapter 5. This is one of those weird stories in the Bible. The glory army of the Lord. It's described in a, in a remarkable way. Listen to this verse, 2 Samuel chapter 5. When you hear the sound of the march of the glory of the Lord in the tops of the balsam trees, rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines, the enemy of Israel. So let's put all this together. Israel was off base. Jesus was her king, but he was coming to confront Israel with her own brokenness and her own sin because God will not be made into anyone's image. He is not your vending machine. He is not your mascot. And here we see him in his triumphal entry and you need to imagine it. You need to imagine Jesus surrounded by people holding up palm branches, cut from trees, surrounding Jesus, waving the branches, And you need to remember 2 Samuel chapter 5, when the glory of the Lord marches through the trees. And you need to remember that we've seen God among the trees before. We've seen in history that it begins in a garden, in a grove of trees, and Adam is called to cultivate them. And he's, and he's called to invited to eat their fruit. But Adam rebels. And so God comes to Adam in the garden, in the midst of the trees, calling him to account. Here is Jesus in the triumphal entry, walking once again among the trees of the garden, calling Israel to account. He's here as king, and his first order of duty is to judge. And it's no surprise that in the very next story, Jesus goes straight to the temple to toss the tables around and to cast the money changers of Israel out of the garden. The crowds around Jesus, they wanted a prophet. But this prophet would tell them that their city was under God's judgment. They wanted a Messiah. But this Messiah was going to be enthroned on a Roman cross. Israel wanted to be rescued from other people's evil and oppression. And Jesus was going to rescue them, but he was going to rescue them from evil in its full depths, not just the surface evil of Roman occupation and exploitation. The bad news is that the crowds, when they figure this as out, when they figure out that Jesus is not the king that they had celebrated, that they expected, that they wanted, they do what we all do to the killers of our dreams. They struck him. They cut him down. That's the bad news. But the good news is in their disappointment, in their cruel action, God gathers up those actions and he uses them to bring his salvation to the world. And here perhaps I think is what we need to hear from God in this morning's passage because we have our own aspirations. You want a degree? You want to get a job? You want to earn some money? Perhaps... Get married? Fine, fine, fine. 
But how do we prevent our aspirations from remaking God into our vending machine? It's so easy, isn't it? It is so easy to confuse our desires for God's desires. Our culture teaches us that the answer to the question, who am I, is found by looking within. The real you is discovered in your deepest dreams and desires. To find yourself, look within yourself. And when that is a dominant view in a culture that you live in, it is so easy to turn God into a mascot. So easy to turn God into a God of our own image. So easy to call out to God for my will to be done. So easy to invoke God to back up our ambitions, our plans, our way of doing things, our dreams. So today is the beginning of Holy Week. And it's good that we put ourselves in the place of the crowds. It's good that we're reminding ourselves how easy it is to make Jesus into our homeboy. Right? To make Jesus into our mascot. So as we walk through this week, this is just the beginning of the week. As we walk through Holy Week, let's pray. Let's ask God, what do you want from me? Help me to orbit my life around you. Help me to yield my dreams to you. And he will help us. He works in our lives still today. But it is often in ways we least expect it, right? That's the crowd. God was there. He was working, but in ways they did not expect. One of my favorite theologians says about this passage, often we find that the hurricane of love, which we tremblingly call God, sweeps in from fresh angles and fulfills our deepest dreams by first shattering them. And as we try to follow Jesus in faith and hope and love, do not be surprised if in the process there are moments when it feels as if we are being sucked down into the depths. 500 miles from the shore. Surrounded by 100 foot waves. Weeping for the dream that has died. For the kingdom that isn't coming the way we want it to. And in those moments, we need to open ourselves to God. Because like Israel in Matthew chapter 21, it may be that we are on the verge of hearing the fresh word. The word that comes when the storm is stilled. And in the new great calm, we may see a way forward we had never imagined. Who knows what might happen if one of us, or 10 of us, or 50 of us, go through this holy week praying humbly for the powerful 
fresh wind of God to blow into our personal aspirations so that we might share in the sufferings of the Messiah and come through into the new life he longs to give. Let's pray.